And I, I believe, and I've told you this before, I believe, I believe that I am in the last decade of my ministry. And some of you in this room were there the very first time I ever spoke a message. I believe it was at Pat Self's house. And I was asked to speak on one evening, 53 plus years ago. First time I ever spoke. And I can remember what I spoke on. I spoke on the armor of God out of Ephesians chapter 6. It's been a long journey, a long journey, but the time has gone by so very fast, so very fast. And whether the Lord allows me to go beyond those, this decade into ministry or not, that's his choice. But I am a flower quickly fading. <laughs> but I'm here today. I might be gone tomorrow, but I'm here today. And so we're thankful for the opportunity to be able to share with you. I got a phone call on Thursday from James. James in a little desperate situation. I won't go into that detail, but I think you're probably aware of it, that he double booked. And double booking is a thing that we preachers do from time to time. But I was just very thankful for the opportunity to be here with you. Let's turn, please, to Second, uh, 1 Timothy. We're going to be reading the last several verses of this beautiful letter, very personal pastoral letter. And Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, beginning in verse 13, you've covered verse 11 and 12 last week, but verse 13, he says to Timothy, I urge you in the sight of God, who gives life to all things, and before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen nor can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Oh, Timothy, guard what has been committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babbling, and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have gone astray concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, again, we ask for your guidance, for the guidance of your spirit as we look at these wonderful verses. We pray that you would bless, that you would encourage, that you would strengthen. 
Father, we just commit it into your care that your son may be lifted up and honored and glorified this morning. For we ask it in his precious name. Amen. You believe that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, is coming again, don't you? You believe that he is coming again. And one day we will hear the shout if we have, are alive and remain. We will hear the shout and he will collect us up to be with him. You believe that, don't you? You know that he's coming. You know also that one day he will come physically to this earth again. You know that after seven years of severe tribulation on this world and on the system of this world, that the Lord Jesus Christ will return to this earth, defeating the enemies of Israel at that battle of Armageddon, that he will come and he will reign on this earth for a thousand years. You believe that, don't you? You believe that after that time of the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the day of the Lord coming as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the worlds that are in them will be burned up. You believe that after that According to his promise, we look for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Since all these things will be dissolved, since all these things will be melted away with a fervent heat, all these things shall be dissolved. What manner of persons ought you to be? What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and Godliness. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. So Peter ends his first epistle. And when we look at this ending of Paul's first letter to Timothy, we find that he ends on a similar note. He ends on a similar note. He encourages Timothy. And these words should stir us. These words should stir us in our hearts and in our souls. They should stir us because these truths that we just were quoting and remembering, these truths are part of what we call our hope. It is the hope of eternal life that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. Does that hope burn in you? Does that hope burn in you? One day we shall look upon his face. One day we shall see him. And Paul is encouraging Timothy to keep his eye on the ultimate goal. Keep your eye, Timothy, on the ultimate goal. Just as Peter encouraged them to keep their eye on the final goal, the ultimate goal. He is called, as he says here in verse 13, he says, I urge you in the sight of God. I urge you in the sight of God, 
who gives life to all things. And before Jesus Christ, this urging, you, you've seen this word before. He's used it several times in this epistle. He talks about earlier in the epistle, in chapter 1, I believe it is, he urges them, he urges Timothy to teach no other doctrine. Charge others that they teach no other doctrine, giving heed to fables. He tells Timothy to urge those false teachers to teach no other doctrine. And this word urge, sometimes it's, it's translated urge, sometimes it's translated charge, sometimes it's translated command, sometimes it depends on, on the form of the verb by which the translators decided to translate it, but all together it means to encourage one to do something, to direct one to do something. Timothy, he says, I want you to urge those people. I want you to charge them. I want you to give them command that they teach no other doctrine. He's to charge again in chapter 4. He's to charge others to reject the false teaching. And here it's that imperative. Command them to not receive, not take on the false doctrine that has been coming in. Later on, he'll, he's told to charge the widows to live blameless. Charge the widows to live blameless lives. Command the widows to live blameless lives. Later on, even in the same text that we read, he is told to command the rich to charge them. And the only time in this epistle where Paul charges Timothy is in verse 13. He tells Timothy to charge these others, command these others to do things, and then he turns around now to Timothy and he says to Timothy, I charge you, I command you, Timothy, in the sight of God, in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a solemn thing, isn't it? That's a solemn thing. But it's a solemn thing that's going to reflect on us as well when we look at this portion. I am charging you, Paul says to Timothy, and it is in the sight of God who sees all things, who knows all things, the God who is looking down on you right now, Timothy, in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one that you have committed your life to, the one that you've been serving with your life all of these years, Timothy, I charge you by that one, the one with the eyes of a flame of fire that sees all things, Timothy. I charge you, Timothy, I urge you, Timothy. I urge you, Timothy. And what does he urge him to do? He urges him in the sight of God who gives life to all things. And that's that word that's oftentimes translated to quicken. God is the one that quickens life. He quickened you the time when you came to know Christ. You were quickened in your spirit. 
You were born again. He uses this term to talk about the resurrection of those who have been laid in the tombs, whose life he will quicken again and bring life again to those who have gone and saw corruption. Before the God who gives this quickening, this life to everything, to the God who has given life to you. The God who has given you your physical life and to the God who has given you, quickened you in your spirit and has given you spiritual life so that you have been born again, not of corruptible things like silver and gold from the traditions of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. He has quickened you through the Spirit of God and has given you life and he's given me life. I urge you in the sight of this God who quickens all things to life. He gives life to all things. And before the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who witnessed the good confession of faith before Pontius Pilate, who witnessed the good Confession of faith. And we'll get back to that in just a moment. Because when he says, I urge here, it is directly connected by language, by grammar, to the command. I command, I, I urge you, the you actually is the connection, I urge you to keep the commandment. To keep this commandment. Now what commandment then is he speaking of? Is he speaking of the commandment that he just gave, where he talks about fighting the good fight? Is he talking about the command that he has just given, O oh man of God, to flee from these things, to flee from these wicked things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness, fight the good fight, hold on to, lay hold of eternal life? Is that what this command is that he is to keep? Well, certainly it is. Contextually, it's the closest verbs that we get to it. But also, it is the command of the entire letter. It is all the things that he has instructed him to do. All the things that he has given him instruction to do. Do, Timothy, what I have asked you as an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the Spirit of God, to perform. To perform. And we could, I suppose, we could extend it out to all the New Testament teaching. All the things that we have learned and all the things that we have known concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ, concerning the faith that we hold, hold on to it. Hold on to it. So he says, I'm urging you, Timothy, and it's in the sight of God that I'm urging you, Timothy. It is in the sight of God who has given you your very life and gives life to all things that has quickened you and given you the spiritual life that you possess. And before Jesus Christ, that you keep these commandments, keep this commandment without spot, blameless, until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing. What is then this good confession? What is this 
good confession that he makes. I, I think if we look at this, we look at the narrative that we find in, you know, look at me this morning, I'm all dressed up with a suit coat and everything, you know. I've noticed I'm putting my hands like this, and I feel it very prof professorial, you know. Like this. <laughs> what, what, it, what was the confession that the Lord Jesus Christ made before Pharaoh, before Pharaoh, before Pilate? What was the confession? You see, the, when he was standing before Pilate, there were those who were bringing false testimony before, when it was before the priest and the high priest. You remember, he was, he was before the priest and the high priest, and they were seeking something against him. What could they find? And the false witnesses would come, could come forward, and their stories wouldn't agree. And then one came along and said, well, he said that he would destroy the temple in three days, build it again. And even those testimonies didn't agree. Then the high priest said to him, Tell us plainly, are you the Messiah? Which includes the idea of being the king of Israel, the coming king, the coming prince, if you will. You want to use that terminology? The coming king of Israel who would, who would defeat the enemies of Israel, set up his kingdom. Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? And he said, it is as you say it is. I am the Messiah. I am the king. Tore his clothes. What further need do we have? He's blasphemed. He's blasphemed. And now they bring him before Pilate, and Pilate says to him, Are you then the king of the Jews? I am. I am. He acknowledged before Pilate that he was indeed the king of Israel. And you shall see him coming. And you shall see him coming. I am the king. That is the profession that he made, or the confession that he made before Pilate. He acknowledged who he is indeed. Now, let's take that then. Let's take that. If that, is, if that is the confession that the Lord Jesus makes before Pilate, acknowledging who he is, acknowledging that he is the king, the coming king, and he has a claim to a kingdom that is to come, his kingdom is not of this world, he says. To this I was born. For this cause I came into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth hears my voice. Now listen to how it flows into our text this morning. I urge you in the sight of God, who gives life to all things, before, and before whom Jesus Christ, who professed and made a confession before Pilate that he is indeed the coming king, that he is the king of Israel. He is the king. That you keep this command without spot, blameless unto the, unto, 
our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which he will manifest, which he will show in his own time. He will show in his own time. He will demonstrate. He will reveal. He will manifest in his own time that he is indeed the blessed one. He will indeed reveal that he is the sovereign one, the only potentate, the only sovereign God in whom resides all power, all authority, all strength, all omniscience, all omnipotence, all omnipresence, all of the qualities and attributes of God. In him resides all of the Godhead. He is the only potentate, and it will be revealed. And you see, that's what it says here. When it says here that keep his commandments without spot and blameless unto the time of our Lord, our, our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, it's not the appearing that is the direct object of the verb. It is this manifestation of who he is. He made a profession before Pilate that I am the king. And one day, that manifestation, that confession that he made before Pilate will become clear to all on the earth. And the sovereign God will be revealed in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The sovereign God the only potentate, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. We know that title is used of the Father. It's also used of the Son. He is the King of kings, and He is the Lord of lords. All kings on this earth, all presidents, all prime ministers, all the kings and rulers of this earth fall underneath the authority, the absolute authority of the King of kings. The Lord of all lords. The master of all lords. And one day, he will be revealed. One day, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day, he's coming. And that is why I began this with those statements that you found at the end of Second Peter. Second Peter. The idea that it is all about his coming here that motivates, that to be that which motivates, uh, motivates Timothy to do these commands, to follow through on these commands. If we know these things, what sort of people ought we to be? You believe that, don't you? You believe that he's coming. You believe that he is going to reign one day. You believe that he is the sovereign God, don't you? you? Of course you do. You believe who he is. Who alone has immortality. Who alone has immortality dwelling in perfect light. He alone who has immortality. Now what is immortality? What, what time do I have to? And don't say till you're finished, because... <laughs> okay, good, thank you. What is immortality which he alone possesses? Immortality is not endless existence. That's not what immortality is. It's not endless existence or more existence after death. For dying does not terminate life. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, your soul will live on. 
you will live on. It's where you will live that was, that's the difference. The unsaved go on living after death just as the saved do. Immortality is not the same as the gift of eternal life that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord, that which is given to us when we place our faith and trust in the Lord, and He gives to us everlasting and eternal life. Immortality of the soul is unscriptural. We don't have immortal souls. We have immortality relates to the body. It relates to this flesh. It relates to this flesh. Immortality of the soul is not, the soul is never considered to be mortal. If you know what I mean. It's never considered to be mortal. Bodies are mortal. And this mortal must put on immortality. And if I die before that time, my body will go to corruption. And then that corruption must put on incorruption. The mortal, if you're still alive at the time of Christ, will put on immortality. It has to do with this body that we have, that he will change in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed. We shall be changed. There are two ways of leaving earth for heaven. One is by death, and one is by translation. We've talked about both of them already. Those are the only ways you're going to leave earth. It's either going to be by death, or it's going to be by translation when the Lord comes in and takes you home if we are still alive. Christ, right now, according to the Scripture, is the only one who died, but whose body never faced corruption. His body died, but he never faced corruption. Do you remember that? His body never faced corruption. He never faced corruption. Therefore, he is immortal, the immortal one who's always been, always will be. He is the ever-living one now, raised up the perfect Son of God. And there's so much more in that that we just don't have the time to go into now. But he talks about, now only he has immortality dwelling in the light and has brought life in immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, which I, I think refers, and you, you, can, you can question me on this. No, don't actually question me because I won't have an answer. But you can doubt me on this. But I believe when he talks about unapproachable light, he's not merely talking about the Shekinah glory and the brilliance of who he is. But he's talking about his holiness and his perfection that is unapproachable. He is the transcendent God. He is separate from everything. He is holy and holy and holy. He is the transcendent God. And by transcendence, we mean that He is above all things. Nothing compares with Him. He cannot be reached or touched. He is transcendent. But the transcendent God became personal. That is an amazing truth. This the transcendent God became 
personal. And men reached out and touched God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is what has been bought for us, my brothers and sisters. We can now approach the throne of God boldly. We can approach the holy presence of God boldly because we have on us the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. We have a holiness that has been imputed to us by the blood of Christ. And one day I shall see him. One day I shall look on his face, whom no man can see. No man has seen or can see to whom be honor and everlasting power. We could say other things about that concerning the Father and concerning the Son, but we will leave it there for now. And you can ask James about that later. Then he says this, and we're going to try and wrap up as quickly as we can now. He gives now, uh, Timothy, another thing to charge the people of the assembly with. You know, this is, this is not an easy thing for anybody. I'm telling you right now. Having been in this kind of ministry for all of these years, it's not easy for someone to come to and say, you need to fix this. You need to fix this. You got a problem here. You need to fix it. Well, how do I go about doing that? That's not my problem. You fix it. Stop this from happening, Timothy. You can't allow it to go on. But these men are older than I am. And it doesn't matter, Timothy. You have a responsibility to fix this. By the Spirit of God and by the power of God and by the direction that I have given you, by apostolic authority which I have placed in, on you now, you go and get this job done. You do it. The Lord has given you work to do. And he says to us, get it done. Get it done. And he says to them, he, in this last charge he is to give, he says, command them, because it's now it's in an imperative form, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty. doesn't say not to be rich. doesn't say to give it all away. He says, tell them not to be haughty, about what they have, looking down on others who maybe don't have as much, looking down on others, setting yourself up high, but don't trust in riches, but trust in the living God who gives all things to us to enjoy. How do we deal with our riches? Not my riches. How do you deal with riches? Paul has told Timothy that there is one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He is the mediator between us and God. He is the go-between between us and God. But he needs to be, in our lives, the one that stands between us and everything else. He needs to be the one that stands between us and our our mothers and our fathers and our wives and our husbands. He says, if you, if you can't leave all of that behind for my sake, you can't be my disciple. You can't follow me. You must have him between all of those things that you possess. Your wife, your husband, 
every possession that you have, your home, your car, your bank accounts, everything, he must stand as the mediator between you and all of those things. Because in reality, he is your Lord and he owns them. They're his. No need to be haughty over what we have because it's really not ours in the final analysis. It's his. And so he says, and if you have it, and the Lord who owns it comes to you and says, I need it, then you give it. It's as simple as that. If the Lord says, I need your home for a care group, well, then you open it up. Because in, in the final analysis, he owns it. If I need your daughter, I need your son to serve me on a foreign field where things are not safe, he stands between you and your child. And you give him and commend him to the Lord and to the service of the Lord. So, the rich do not be haughty with what you possess because it's Christ who has given it to you. It's God who has given it to you to enjoy and to be willing to share it. And that stores up a good foundation that you may lay hold on these eternal values. Oh, Timothy, guard what has been committed to you. Guard what has been committed to your trust. And so we end this book with the same exhortation to you all and to myself. Guard what has been committed to you. Much has been committed to you. Much has been committed to you. You all have a spiritual gift that has been committed to you. You all have responsibilities before the Lord that have been committed to you. Guard it. Watch over it. Fulfill it for the glory of your Savior in light of his soon coming. Father, we give you thanks. We give you praise for your mercy and grace to each one of us. Thank you, Father, for all that you have taught us all through all of these years of our sojourn. May we be those who are willing to be faithful and walk with you through these years of our lives that remain to us. May we heed the warnings, heed the encouragements that you gave through your servant Paul to Timothy. May we guard the trust that you have given to us. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.